Well, good morning, New Breed Church. Again, it is, it is good to be with you, and it's good to open God's Word. Hopefully by now you're at the book of Daniel, and this morning we are actually at the end of our series through the book of Daniel, a study that we've been in for quite a few weeks. Uh, that was a study that we've entitled Dominion, Faith, and Worship, and we have, we have seen those three theme, themes be on full display throughout the book, and we'll, we'll see those themes again today as we close out. So before we, before we dive in here, let me just kind of tell you where we're going. <clears throat> as you're aware, hopefully, uh, next week we're actually doing uh, an in-person service. We're going to be right out back here in, uh, in, the, in the, the lawn, and we're going to be worshiping together as a church, socially distanced, but, but coming together for an outdoor service, and we are so excited about that. Uh, but, but what we'll start next week and I told you before the book of Daniel that where we were going was that we were going to do the book of Daniel, uh, and then we were going to do a series on biblical friendship. We are going to do a series on biblical friendship, but we're going to take a few weeks in between Daniel and that series to just talk a little bit about what's going on in our world today. And we're going to deal with some of the issues of, of race and the gospel uh, and the image of God and just try to make sure that we as Christians are thinking through this in a helpful and a a healthy way, especially uh, with what is looming in November uh, with an election coming up. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, at least not from the pulpit. You can come to my house and talk to me about that so I don't lose tax-exempt status. Um, but we're going to just try to unpack some of this and, and see what the Bible has to say because the Bible has a lot to say about the issues that, that are facing our country and that we're wrestling with in terms of the image of God and, and, and justice. Uh, and so we, we want to press into those for a few weeks, and then we'll be heading uh, into a series which I'm very excited about on, on biblical friendship. But this morning, as we finish the book of Daniel, I want us to consider the idea of standing firm until the end. Standing firm until the end. And our text this morning is both chapter 11 and chapter 12, but what I want to read, at least out loud here initially at the beginning, is just chapter 12. I want to read those last few verses of the book. So follow with me as I read Daniel chapter 12, beginning there in verse 1. This is the son, uh, the pre-incarnate son of God speaking, and he says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since the nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Many will roam about and knowledge will increase. And then I, Daniel, looked and two others were standing there. One on, on this bank of the river and one on the other. 
One of them said to the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river, how long until the end of these wondrous things? Then I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river. He raised both his hands toward heaven and swore by him who lives eternally that it would be for a time, times, and, and half a time when the power of the holy people is shattered. All these things will be completed. I heard but did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go on your way, Daniel, for the words are secret and sealed until the end of or till the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Happy is the one who waits for and reaches 1,335 days. But as for you, go on your way to the end. You will rest. And then you will stand to receive your allotted inheritance at the end of the days. Heavenly Father, as we finish studying this book of Scripture, Your Word, God, that You have communicated to us. I pray that You will give us grace to endure, grace to stand until the end, and to run in such a way as to win the prize. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, church, uh, yesterday was uh, the Kentucky Derby. Uh, I didn't watch it, but I know it was happening. Uh, the fastest two minutes in sports. It's a race that covers one and a quarter mile and lasts, as the phrase suggests, about two minutes. The fastest time ever recorded at the Kentucky Derby was one minute and 59 seconds. The fastest two minutes in sports. But in all actuality, the race itself, or, or the race, takes much longer than two minutes to run. And the reason I say that is because those horses train so long to run those two minutes. And their training and preparation is key. One thing that the trainers want to avoid at all costs is injury to their horses while they run this race. While they're running with the other horses at full speed for these two minutes, they want with everything in them to, to avoid injury at all cost. And one of the ways that they prevent injury or loss is by introducing the horse to the track. For some reason, even though I didn't watch the race this week, I found myself reading all these articles about the race and, and read one from a trainer slash veterinarian who was saying that, that what they try to build in horses is somewhat equivalent to what we would call muscle memory, right? They want their, their skeletons and their bones to be familiar with the ground that they are touching so that they remember how to run on whatever particular surface they're running on. The only way they can do that is by introducing the horses to the track frequently before the time of the race. They spend some time getting to know the track that they are running on. And again, the goal being that this exposure to the track before they face it on race day will keep them from serious injury, it will keep them from falling, and it will keep them from failing to finish well. Because the goal, as you know of the Kentucky Derby, is to win. 
No one wants to come in second place. The goal is to win. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control and everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. And then Paul says, so I I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And what Paul says is that we too are running a race. And we have to run in such a way as to win the prize. We have to stand firm and reach the end. And what that means is that we have to be willing to prepare for the race that we are in. And one of the ways we prepare is by paying attention to the track that we're running on. Familiarizing ourselves with it so we know what's coming around this turn and this turn. And and we know uh, the, the consistency of the ground that we are running on. We have to familiarize ourselves with the track just like those Horses that run the Kentucky Derby. And so here, in these concluding chapters of Daniel, God is in some sense revealing and showing us what the course of life will look like. He is showing us what the track will entail so that we can run in such a way as to win a prize without injury or falling or failing to run well. And ultimately, God is showing us the course of this life so that we will stand firm until the end. And so what I want to do this morning as we work through these last two chapters is offer you four truths as we conclude our time in the book of Daniel that are essential to standing firm until the end. And I'll tell you up front, these aren't new truths. Many of them have been repeated throughout the book, and I think the reason that God continuously brings these truths up is because He wants to make sure we believe them. He wants to make sure we are holding them near and dear to our hearts. So some of it will be a review of what we've already talked about, but praise God that He gives us a chance to review the truths that we need to stand firm until the end. So here's the first truth that I have for you. A simple yet profound truth that when we believe it, it will change everything. Here it is. God can be trusted. God can be trusted. You know, in chapter 11, uh, this is part of the reason we didn't read it. It's because God wants to give, gives Daniel a glimpse into what is going to happen in the future. And part of the reason we didn't read chapter 11 is because to a large degree, chapter 11 mirrors chapter 8. And, and we didn't talk a lot about kind of the structure of the books. I was trying to focus very much on the truth of it. But when, when, you, when you look at the book of Daniel, in the Hebrew, it is filled with chiasms. 
I mean, chapters have chiasms, the book as a whole have chiasms, and what chiasms are is it's a way in which the writing flows. So you take different themes, right? Theme A, theme B, and theme C. And so the way a chiasm works is a chiasm would be written where you would, you, the structure would go A, B, C, B, A. So it works forward and then backwards. And so basically, if we said that chapter 8 was... A, then chapter 11 is A also. So, so there are chiasms throughout the book. And so, again, what you need to know is that chapter 11 intentionally to fulfill the chiasm mirrors chapter 8. And so Daniel, as he is receiving this final vision, and God begins again recounting the future as it relates to Israel... You know, no, I don't want to spend too much time on this because you can go back and listen to Sermon 8. We did discuss a good portion of it, but, but I want to just kind of show you the, the progression of history here, and, and it's all getting somewhere. So, so chapter 11, again, traces for Daniel what would be future events, but for us, what we look back and know as history. Now, I have a timeline that I'm going to put up on the screen in just a second that you'll be able to see, and if you're taking notes or you want this information, don't stress too much about writing it down because because there in the description of the stream is a link that you can click on and pull these slides out to look at them uh, or, or to stick in your notes or whatever you want to do. So I'm going to move through them kind of quickly. So don't, don't worry if you don't get all of the information down. And, and, but what we see is this progression of future events for Daniel. It's our history, but it begins to unfold there in verse 2. So let me walk you through some history here. So in 530 to 6 or to 465 BC there were four major rulers in Persia. You see Cambyses, Pseudo-Smerdis, Darius and Xerxes. We we know of Xerxes, we've heard of him. And, and this historical fact relates to verse 2. In chapter 11, where it says three more kings will arise in Persia and the fourth will be far richer than the others by the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. And that's how it played out. Xerxes was the most wealthy of all of the kings and he was the one who went to attack the Greeks. And then in 336 to 323 BC, we have the reign of Alexander the Great. Again, history, we know this, but it correlates directly to verse 3. Then a warrior king will arise, he will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But then in 323 BC, Alexander the Great's death occurred and the kingdom is split into four parts, given to four generals. And this correlates to verse 4 of chapter 11. But as soon as he is established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others besides them. But then you move to, to the death of Berenice in 246 BC. And Berenice was the daughter of uh, Ptolemy. And he married the Syrian king. Or she, I'm sorry, she married the Syrian king. And what happens is that this king actually ends up divorcing his wife in order to marry Berenice. Together they have a son. But the divorced wife eventually murders, and it's speculation about the king, but some historians agree she killed the king, but for sure killed 
Berenice and their son, thus bringing her own son, Seleucius, to power. This correlates to verse 6. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal the agreement. But she will not retain power, and his strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father, and the ones who supported her during those times. But then you move to 246 B.C. to 222 B.C. And Ptolemy's son, this is Berenice's brother, took over rule after his father and conquered Syria. And this correlates to verse 7 of chapter 11. In the place of the king of the south, one from her father will rise up, come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will take action against them and triumph. Then 222 to 203 B.C. You have Ptolemy IV. He, he destroyed the Syrian army. And this correlates to verse 11 of chapter 11. Infuriated, the king of the south will march out to fight with the king of the north who will raise a large army, but they will be handed over to the enemy. Then you go to 223 to 187 B.C. And you see Antichus III took lasting control over Israel. And because of Roman pressure, he sought to make peace with Egypt by giving his daughter Cleopatra in marriage. You remember the story of Cleopatra? Well, the Bible predicted it long before it happened. Verse 16. The king of the north who comes against him will do whatever he wants and no one can oppose him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land with total destruction in his hand. 187 B.C. Antichus tries to conquer Greece. But this put him in conflict with Rome. And he lost that battle and therefore was told by Rome to pay for the battle that he had caused. And while raising funds, he was killed. This is verses 18 and 19 of chapter 11. Then he will turn his attention to the coast and the islands and capture many. But a commander will put an end to his taunting. Instead, he will turn his taunts against him. He will turn his attention back to the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and be no more. And then in 175 to 164 BC, the most cruel king of the north was Antichrist IV, and he fiercely persecuted Israel, leading to the defilement of the temple. And we read this in verses 21 through 35. Now you might be thinking, well, why are you giving us a history lesson? Especially since we already talked about it in chapter 8. Well, I am reminding you of this because we cannot miss what God is doing here. God is doing something very important. See, by God predicting all of these things, hundreds of you, not predicting, but telling that this is what was going to happen, God is proving that he is trustworthy. Because you see, what takes place in chapter 11, verse 36, is that a shift begins to take place. You know, we had mentioned in our sermon in Daniel 8 how Antichrist IV, this fierce persecutor of Israel who would come in, in a few hundred years from after, when, after Daniel, that he was a picture, Daniel uses him as a picture of a greater enemy of the Antichrist. So after mentioning Antichrist the fourth in verses 21 through 35 and his literal rule on earth the conversation begins to switch in verse 36 to talk about the end times themselves something that will happen even further in the future 
So the end of 11 and chapter 12 is talking more about the end of all things rather than the literal Antichrist the fourth. And we will see this, it's supported in chapter 12 in just a few moments. But I want you to catch this. Here's why this is so interesting and so intriguing. This is why it proves God's trustworthiness because one of the requirements for the people of God was to test the prophets of God. You see that in Deuteronomy, you see it in the law, that, that one, of, one of the requirements of the people of God was to test anyone who said he spoke concerning future events in God's name. And they were to test this prophet. And the way that they tested is to look for signs and evidence in the short term that would validate them as a mouthpiece of God to predict long-term things. Let me, let me say that again. They were to look for signs and evidence in the short term that would validate the prophet as a mouthpiece of God to make long-term or future predictions. And so remember that ultimately what God is most concerned about is the eternal hope that his people will have in glory. And so he goes through and lays out what will happen in, in, in history. God didn't have to do this. God was already trustworthy, but that's how faithful he is. God wants, wants us to see his trustworthy, trustworthiness. So he is making declarations about what will take place in the short term against relatively speaking, when you consider the end of the age, so that we and every saint to come will trust God when it comes to the things that have not yet happened. So he gives us all these predictions. He tells us everything that's going to happen in history and Persia and in Greece about people who will, who will raise up. And it's not general, it's specific. He tells what they will do and what they will be like. He speaks of people marrying people and, and he speaks of their intentions and their motives and their deaths. And all of it happens with pinpoint accuracy and God does all of this to validate his trustworthiness so that when he then speaks about the end times, we can rest assured that God knows exactly what he is talking about. We look back at what God has done and see him as trustworthy in order to trust him as we look forward to what has yet to happen. So we can look back and see that history testifies to just how faithful and trustworthy our God is. I mean, we just covered a span of some 350 years and everything happened just as God said it would because God is not predicting, God is orchestrating everything that takes place. What's so fascinating to me about these predictions is they are so accurate that some have argued and many continue to argue that the book of Daniel, there's no way that it could have been written in the 6th century. There's no way it could have been written before all of these events took place because to get, the, to get them right with that much accuracy would require you having to look back to, to make sure that they actually happened. So a lot of people will argue, and I would say it's a silly argument, but will argue that the book of Daniel had to be written within like the first century BC, like after these events took place. Because for some, the pinpoint accuracy of the prophecies are just too inexplicable. But in my opinion, it's not that hard to explain when your God is that amazing. You know, history 
when they write about the Seleucid kings, when, they, when history tells us of the Greek empire, when we hear the stories of Cleopatra, they are unknowingly declaring the faithfulness and trustworthiness of our God who spoke and all of this came to fruition. And God is proving to be a faithful and trustworthy God. But, but I want you to see this as well because it is so important. His trustworthiness is meant to be a, com- a comfort for believers in hard times. I mean, think about this. There would be believers who would come and who would live under Antiochus IV. That cruel king that persecuted the Jews, that defiled the temple, that sacrificed to Zeus, and, and it was an abomination to God. There were, there were believers, right? Those children of God, his people who lived under the reign of Antichrist. And what a comfort for them to go back and read Daniel and know that they are right where they should be. That God has not abandoned them, but God is faithfully doing exactly what he said he would do. And even more, as he points to the end of the age, he says in verse, or in chapter 12, verse 1, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, at that, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people will rise up. There will be a time of distress such such as never has occurred since the nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. God tells us that, that as the end of this age draws near, there will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since the nations came into being. In other words, things for us as Christians are not supposed to get easier as time goes on. In fact, the exact opposite is true. Things are supposed to get more and more difficult. And so God tells us this, not to scare us, but to comfort us. So then when we as believers face the hardship and we face the persecution and we face the trial, our default reaction shouldn't be, where is God in all of this? Why are these bad things happening? But no, we can look to a trustworthy God who has proven his faithfulness and say, things are happening just like he said. He is still good. He is still on his throne and he is still trustworthy. But church, we have to be ready for this. I don't want to gloss over that point that there will be a time of distress such as has never has occurred since the nations came into being. Again, it means that as we continue to strive to be faithful in an age that is increasingly growing more and more wicked, it will not get easier for us. I think for us specifically as Americans, we have a hard time believing that because we have been privileged to enjoy religious liberty in our country. Some of our brothers and sisters across the world are looking at us going, yeah, of course it's not getting easier. You know, we've not felt the sting of that as much as some, but I believe it's coming. I think we're already starting to see the ripples of, of when we stand on the word of God, when we hold to his word, when we believe in, in, in biblical truth and we speak that biblical truth. We're starting to see more and more the world that we live in, specifically our country, pushed back. We're beginning to be ostracized and demonized. And it doesn't mean that God is absent. It means that what, is, what God has said would happen is happening. 
And we've got to be prepped for that. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that as time progresses, I believe that our faithfulness will bring with it more and more pain and struggle and persecution. And if you are truly being faithful, you'll be getting it from all sides, from the right and the left. And when this happens, we don't have to say, what in the world is going on? We say, ah, this is what my trustworthy God told me would happen. Things will not get better, but God can be trusted, especially in the hard times, because he has shown here, even in the book of Daniel, chapter 11, he has shown his dominion over it all. And so we have to trust God. We have to trust God. We have to believe that God can be trusted. And trusting God is about more than just lip service. It's not just an abstract idea. But trust Him as we live in a chaotic world. Trust Him with how we live our lives. When He offers solutions. When He offers directions. When He gives us commands. Even when the world is telling us to do something different. A trust in Him will manifest itself by by being obedient. Trust Him. Be obedient to God in all that He has called you to. And especially as you see the end drawing near and near. It will be hard, but He is trustworthy. This leads to a second truth this morning that I want you to see as we consider this idea of standing firm until the end. The second truth is this. The hardship that accompanies the end has a purpose for believers. The hardship that accompanies the end has a purpose for believers. Right? So we've talked about the fact that that hardship is coming. It, It will get more difficult as the end draws near. And so if we are going to stand firm until the end, we have to remember that the hardship that accompanies the end, as we get closer to the end of our race, and it gets more and more difficult, that, that the hardship that accompanies the end has a purpose. See, that's the good news. When we say that things will only get more and more difficult, the good news is that God is working through those trials. It has a purpose. We see the purpose of those who would suffer under Antichrist the fourth in chapter 11, verse 35, where it says some of those who have insight will fail or will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the end time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. But we also see the purpose for those suffering in the end times, for all of us who are living in what I would call now the end times, and I do believe we are in the end times. We can have that conversation at a different day as to why I believe that, but it goes back to how I understand apocalyptic literature. You can go back and listen to some of those sermons. But, but we see the purpose for, for us suffering in the end times now in chapter 12, verse 10, where, where it says, many will be purified cleansed and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. So catch this. It is through the trial that we see here in Daniel as well as other places in Scripture that God is preparing us for glory. It is through the trial that God is preparing us for glory. You know, we see this very truth in 1 Peter chapter 1. Flip over there if you have your Bibles out or if you're on your phone still. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
Notice what Peter writes in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. So let's break down very quickly that passage there in 1 Peter 3. So Peter says that we are blessed by God through Jesus Christ. We, we are blessed by God through what Jesus Christ has done. And in Christ, he says that we have a new birth. We have new life in Christ and a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So our hope is found in the fact that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. But not only that, he goes on and says that God has given us an inheritance that is imperishable. It is undefiled, it is unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. Praise God that your inheritance is safe in the hands of God. And you have this inheritance waiting for you in glory because of Jesus. But then in verse 5, Peter says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith. So, so I want you to see this. This is, this is important. God, at this very moment, is guarding you. And he is keeping you in the faith. You did, you've heard me say it before. You did not wake up a Christian this morning because you were so amazing and so good. You woke up a Christian this morning because God is keeping you moment by moment in the faith because left to ourselves, our flesh would flee from the presence of God. But God is keeping us and refining us and molding us more and more into the image of God. He is keeping us in his faith. But this is what I want you to see. His protection though, his guarding it does not remove the reality of struggle and hardship and trial because in the very next breath, in verse 6, Peter says, you rejoice in this, right? You rejoice in the fact that you are guarded by God, that you have an inheritance that is waiting for you in heaven, that you are blessed in Jesus, that you have hope in the resurrection. He says, you rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So we, we, cannot get it, we cannot get it twisted here and think that God's protection means the alleviation of all trials, of all pain and all hardship. It's just not the case. God's protection will not eliminate persecution. It will not eliminate trial. It will not eliminate suffering, at least not in this world. And the reason is because God is preparing you for your inheritance. And look at verse 7, again, still in 1 Peter. It says, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire, it may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here, Peter compares our faith to gold. He says, gold though, it's perishable. Our faith is so much greater than that. But he says, hey, you know that gold is refined, how gold is refined? 
You know how gold's made beautiful? It's put into the fire. And when gold is put into the fire, the dross and the imperfection and the blemishes, they are all burned away by the heat. And Peter says, that is what God is doing in your life through the trial. That is what God is doing in your life in the hardship. He is burning away the dross. He is burning away the imperfections. He is burning away the blemishes so that we will stand ready to receive our reward at the appointed time. But do you know what this shows us? It reminds us that God loves us and treasures us. I mean, how backward is that, though, from how we normally think about God? And how he works. And it's like, like we feel most treasured by God when things are going well, right? All the prayers are getting answered. The bank account is full. The kids are behaving. Like we sat down and had a family dinner and chaos didn't ensue, right? We got our kids up. We went to church on Sunday morning and nobody threw a fit. Nobody, man, God is for me right now. I know that I am loved and treasured. But what this reminds us is that, no, we see most clearly the fact that God loves and treasures us because he burns us. He burns away the imperfections. He burns away the blemishes because God wants us to be something that we can't make ourselves. He wants us to be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. And so often it is in the trial and the pain and the hardship where we see most clearly the fact that our God loves us and we are treasured by Him. Because I would be petrified if God left me alone. I would be petrified if the, if the trial stopped because that would mean that God has ceased to refine me, which we know that God will never cease to refine His children, but, but, but that's what it would mean. The trial, the hardship, as we are, as we are pursuing faithfulness, seeking to stand firm to the end, it reminds us that we are loved and treasured by God and He is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. But, I want to be clear about this. This does not mean that God cannot and will not deliver us from the trials of this age. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray and seek God's face so that trials and hardship would end. I mean, because remember the book we're in. Remember what we've already talked about. God saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire. He heard their prayers for deliverance and delivered them from the trial. God delivered Daniel from the lion's den. He heard the pleas of even the king himself when he said, protect him, protect your servant. And God delivered Daniel from the lion's den. We can plead with God to move. We can ask him to remove trials and hardship. But we have to have the same mentality that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. That God can do anything He wants. But He doesn't have to do what I want. But whatever He does is always best for me. So if God delivers from the trial, it is because it is what's best for me. But if God responds to that plea for deliverance, it says no, not right now. It is because God is doing what is best for me and what will give him the most glory. And we can believe this because we know that even if he does not deliver us in this life, 
the cross and the empty tomb guarantees deliverance in the life to come. This leads to our third truth this morning as we consider the idea of standing firm till the end. I know I'm about 40 minutes in, so I'm going to pick up the pace here a little bit. The third truth this morning is this. Our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is in the resurrection. You know, even here in the book of Daniel, before Jesus ever stepped foot on this earth as a man, before he was crucified and raised from the dead, God still grounds his people's hope in resurrection. Because look at chapter 12, the end of verse 1 through verse 3. We're back in Daniel now. Daniel 12, the end of verse 1 through verse 3. It says, but at that time... All your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who, listen to this, sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. God is telling his people that at the end of their life, or that the end of their life on this earth is not the end forever. Because resurrection is coming. And God makes a very important distinction here that we often forget. He says that everyone will be resurrected. It's just some of us will be resurrected resurrected to life and some of us to damnation but resurrection is coming and he grounds the hope of his people he grounds their hope and their endurance in the resurrection in church like the people of God from old our hope is in the resurrection Because Jesus was crucified and raised, we find our hope in the fact that one day we will be raised as well. I mean, like Paul writes in Romans 6, 5, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, I want to commend to you that we have to to find a way to genuinely internalize the resurrection. We have to get to the place where the resurrection is a truth that so permeates our thoughts that it is the basis for our hope. J.C. Ryle once said this. He said, There is a resurrection after death, and let this never be forgotten. The life that we live here in the flesh is not all. The visible world around us is not the only world with which we have to do. All is not over when the last breath is drawn and men and women are carried to their long home in the grave. The trumpet shall one day sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and all that are in their graves shall hear Christ's voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. This is one of the great foundation truths of the Christian religion and let us cling to it firmly. And never let it go. Church, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our foundation. I mean, that's what Paul's trying to communicate in the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. 
That without it, we have nothing. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. Paul argues that, listen, if you say that the dead aren't, or that the dead aren't raised to life, then Jesus was not raised to life. And if Jesus is not raised to life, then we are the most to be pitied. Because we have based our entire life on a lie. And he says, and if we've built our life on a lie, then let's just go eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. But Paul says, but in fact, the dead are raised to life, and Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Therefore, our hope is grounded in the fact that Jesus Christ has raised from the dead, and we too will one day raise with him. And without the resurrection, we have nothing. Our hope, church, is based in the resurrection. And my question is, how often in the midst of trial, in the midst of struggle, and in the midst of hardship, in the midst of a world rebelling against God, how often do we remind ourselves about our coming resurrection? The resurrection has to become more than just an Easter doctrine to us. It is a foundation on which our hope is built and secured. And it is a truth that we have to begin to internalize and bring into our daily use or else we will find no hope in a world that is progressively getting harder and harder for Christians to live in. The resurrection is what what undergirds our faithfulness. And the amazing thing is, as we grow to internalize and savor this truth, the truth of the resurrection more and more, not only will our hope grow, but our fear will begin to subside. Our anxiousness about being considered outsiders in this world will begin to disappear. Because our hope in the resurrection reminds us that ultimately this world can't do anything to us. What do we have to be afraid of? That's why Jesus says in in John 11, verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. Everyone who who lives and believes in me will never die. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? It reminds us that the worst that this world can do is kill our bodies, and then we get our reward. And a resurrected life awaits us. Again, church, the resurrection has to become more than just an Easter doctrine to us. It is the foundation on which we ground our hope. And when our hope is in the resurrection, then and only then can we genuinely run in such a way as to win the prize. This leads to our fourth And our final truth as we close the book of Daniel this morning. Here's the fourth truth that I want you to see as we consider standing firm until the end. Our aim is to be found faithful. Our aim is to be found faithful. You know, as Daniel receives this final vision, the vision that would close this book of Scripture... And it's towards the end of his life at this point. Daniel has questions. And look at what it says in chapter 12, beginning there in verse 8. Daniel speaking, he says, I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? So Daniel basically says, I hear all that you're saying about the end times, but I don't get it. Like, what, what's going to happen? What's the outcome? And then verse 9, it says, He said, Go on your way, Daniel, 
For the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Happy is the one who waits for and reaches 1,335 days. But as for you, go on your way to the end. You will rest, and then you will stand to receive your allotted inheritance at the end of the days. Daniel, at the very end of his life, He's not given all the understanding that he's lacking. He doesn't see it all with clarity. His questions remain. He has not seen the full measure of deliverance that was promised, nor will he see most of the things that God has told him will happen come to pass. He won't be around for it. But Daniel was faithful, and he hears rest. And receive your reward. And Daniel heard this because from the beginning of his life in exile, all the way back in Daniel chapter 1 until the end, he was a man who fought for faithfulness. He was a man who stood when the world bowed and bowed when the world stood. He was a man who refused to compromise and trusted in the faithfulness of his God. He was faithful until the end. He held fast and did not waver. He ran the race in such a way as to win the prize. And brothers and sisters, that is our aim. It is to be faithful. And in our text, in chapter 12, verse 3 specifically, we gain an understanding as to the basis of a faithful life. Daniel records the words of the pre-incarnate Son of God who says, Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. So who are those that are counted among the faithful? Well, first, it's those who know the truth, those who have insight. It is those who have placed their faith in a God who is worthy, those who trust Him for deliverance and salvation. It is, it is those who have placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus and Him alone, those who cling to the cross and hope in the resurrection. It is for those who have trusted that, that our sin separates us from God, and yet we have been reconciled to God, not because we are good, but because Jesus came and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died and then three days later God raised him from the dead and we are invited back into fellowship because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and so to be faithful it begins with understanding the truth of of the gospel and who God is and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus but the son of God who is speaking here says something else and he says but also those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever so not only do we trust and hope in Christ but faithfulness demands we lead others to him and so in essence you have the pre-incarnate son of God saying what the incarnate son of God said in the New Testament back in the Old Testament that all of the law hinges on these two things love God and love people love God and love people At least the Son of God's consistent. Amen? 
And, and the most loving thing that you can do for people is to lead them to righteousness. It is to tell them about Jesus. And church, that is the heartbeat of a faithful life lived out. That's the heartbeat of this church and our mission. I mean, we say we exist to make disciples who show off Christ uh, where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. I almost missed it there. You almost caught me trip up. But, but that, that's what we are all about. We say, man, we want to be a people that, that we, are, we are a church filled with disciples, those who have the insight, who know God, who love God and treasure God. But we want to be a people who are out there making disciples, who are leading others to righteousness because the foundation of a faithful life hinges on those two things, loving God well and loving people. And the most effective way to love people is to lead them to righteousness. And church, hear me, if we fail in these two areas of loving God and loving people, we have failed at running a race in such a way as to win a prize. We have not stood firm until the end. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can we can endure well. We can be faithful even in the hard moments. And we have testimony of those who, like Daniel, have gone before and finished the race and won the prize. That's why James writes in James 5, 10 and 11, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Like the prophets of old, like those who have gone before us, we want to endure well. We want to stand firm until the end. And church, I want so desperately, like Daniel, at the end of this life to hear, it is time to rest. Come and receive your inheritance. But we must stand firm. We must run a race like Daniel in such a way as to win a prize, having faith in our great God who has complete dominion, worshiping Him with our mouths and with our lives, even when this world makes it tough. And so the last thing that I want to say to you as we close the book of Daniel this morning is stand firm until the end. Faithfully loving God and loving people, declaring the excellencies of Him, leading people to righteousness. In other words, plain and simple, church, go out and share the gospel with somebody today. Tell someone about Jesus. Love God, love people. Therefore, stand firm until the end and receive the eternal reward that is yours. In Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the book of Daniel. God, we thank you that in it we repeatedly see the reality, God, that you have complete and total dominion. And that you are a God who we should put our faith in. You have proven yourself trustworthy, proven yourself good, proven yourself kind, proven yourself strong to save and deliver. And so give us grace to place our faith in you and worship you with all that we are. Not just with our mouths, but with our lives fleshed out in this broken world that we would have insight and shine like the stars and that we would lead others to righteousness. God, that we would be found faithful. God, thank you for showing us the course, allowing us to step foot on the track to know what's coming and what toils and snares await.
Now, God, help us to be found faithful for your fame and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.